Hey, it's your host, Shannon Ballard. A reminder for you that if you enjoy Southern Mysteries, you can hear more when you become a member on Patreon. Patrons hear bonus content called Southern Mystery Shorts each month. Head to patreon.com slash southern mysteries to join today. This is an important week in America. Whether you've already cast your vote or will be heading to the polls on November 3rd, we know elections matter. We want our vote to count. After all, our vote is our endorsement for the politicians we vote for. With our vote, we're saying we believe this person will live up to promises made. But what if that politician you voted for was so controversial that he was assassinated because he won the office he was seeking, wanted to make changes that would clean up your city and make it safer? That happened in Alabama in June 1954. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the mystery of the Sin City murder of Albert Patterson. We've had our fair share of election drama in America. You just think back to Bush Gore, the 2000 presidential election with its hanging chads and no clear winner on election night. Took more than a month before George W. Bush was declared winner. And when you talk about drama and controversy around elections, the West Virginia governor's race of 1888 had it all. Left the state with four governors taking the oath of office at the same time. In 1888, Erdis Fleming and Nathan Goff Jr. campaigned for the West Virginia governorship. Once the votes were counted, Goff was declared the winner, but Fleming didn't believe he had lost. He contested the decision. In the end, Fleming and Goff took the oath of office. But Emanuel Wilson, the man who held the governor's office before Goff and Fleming, viewed this as an unstable move for the state, refused to vacate his office. With three men claiming to be governor of West Virginia, Robert Carr stepped up to declare his right to hold the office. He was the president of the West Virginia Senate, and he claimed the state constitution required him to fill a gubernatorial vacancy. With uncertainty around who should and could hold office, Carr felt there was a vacancy and took an oath to fulfill his responsibility. It would take two years until West Virginia knew who their governor was. In 1890, the Democratic majority of the state legislature confirmed their candidate, Erdis Fleming, as the eighth governor. The uncertainty of who has won an office is one thing. The uncertainty and fear that a person could hold office and start making changes that would drive organized crime out of a city they controlled, well, that kind of uncertainty around an election led to murder in Alabama in 1954. Phoenix City in Russell County, Alabama is situated along the west bank of the Chattahoochee River. The river separates the city from Columbus, Georgia and nearby Fort Benning. Back in 2007, Business Week named Phoenix City America's best affordable suburb for raising a family. Look Magazine named it an all-American city in 1955. A big leap forward 
for the city designated by U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson as the wickedest city in America in 1940. Phoenix City, the city of 23,000 in the 1940s, was then known as Sin City, held that title before Vegas took the claim to fame, and it's all because of some good old boys known as the Dixie Mafia. Now, the mob in Alabama wasn't the mob most of us envision when we think of Vegas, Chicago, and New York. The Dixie Mafia, as they were called, well, they were good old Southern boys. And there wasn't one big syndicate. There were several Dixie Mafias between the 1930s and 1970s all along the Gulf Coast, from Texas to Alabama. Their bootlegging and gambling operations thrived because even after Prohibition ended in 1933, some southern states and counties remained dry for decades. Some counties are still dry. After Prohibition, bootleggers saw those dry counties as money-making opportunities. Their illegal booze and gambling was the rush and fun a lot of people were looking for. And prostitutes came as part of the Dixie Mafia package deal. Well, Phoenix City was the perfect hub for the Dixie Mafia in Alabama because city leaders were desperate needed money. So they opened a door to legally allow alcohol sales. But as I mentioned, the Dixie Mafia didn't offer that booze without the gambling and prostitution. You get one, you get all three. Just after the Great Depression, Phoenix City had racked up a little over $1 million in debt and went bankrupt. Businesses were shutting down. People were leaving to try to find jobs. Times were tough. So city leaders agreed the crime and corruption that had been slowly creeping into Phoenix City was a sort of necessary evil. City leaders chose to legalize the sale of beer and offer liquor licenses so they could tax the alcohol and bring in some much-needed revenue for the city. And keep in mind, the state of Alabama was still dry. Russell County was still dry. But Phoenix City was open for business. And in came the Dixie Mafia. Phoenix City Police kind of turned a blind eye as crime was moving in with the Mafia. Russell County deputies occasionally carried out raids at the growing number of seedy nightclubs that were popping up, but the revenue stream was growing, and the city created a system to prop it up. Literally created a system of fines for gambling and liquor sales licenses, but never addressed the criminal activity associated with those fines and licenses because it would have cut off the steady revenue being deposited into city accounts. The practice started in the early 1940s and continued well into the mid-1950s, with a reported 20% of the city's general fund made up of income from fines and licenses. All dirty money that was feeding corruption in Phoenix City. By 1940, the murder and crime rate in Phoenix City caught the attention of the federal government. There were serious concerns, especially because of the city's location. Fort Benning was just across the river. Soldiers loved the clubs, gambling halls, and brothels in Phoenix City. And with 100,000 men on the base during World War II, business was booming at those establishments. That's why the Defense Department cared about Phoenix City. They had soldiers on leave, crossing the river to have fun in the wickedest city in America. And some of those soldiers 
were beaten, robbed. Some of them were murdered. In 1941, a new general took over command of the 2nd Armored Division at Fort Benning. His name, General George Patton. When he arrived in Georgia and began to see the damage done to his men who visited Phoenix City, he threatened city officials that he would move tanks across the river and flatten Phoenix City if things didn't change. During the Second World War, Phoenix City officials did make an effort to improve their police force and start cracking down on crime. But the Dixie Mafia, the Phoenix City machine, viewed the war as an opportunity. They expanded operations by running narcotics through the city, conveniently located along the Georgia border to expand their reach. All the while, Dixie Mafia bosses befriended Phoenix City officials and law enforcement and began to rig elections. The partners who headed up the Phoenix City Syndicate, Hoyt Shepard and Jimmy Matthews, worked with their associates to gain footing and credibility where they were welcomed in with appointments to school and hospital boards and the Chamber of Commerce. In return, they helped their community. These philanthropists helped fund the construction of the city hospital and church projects and proudly sponsored Little League baseball teams. All in exchange for folks turning a blind eye to what was happening at clubs like the Bama Club, which attracted big-time gamblers from Chicago, Birmingham, New York, and Boston. From the outside looking in, the Dixie Mafia owned Phoenix City. Locals who had been born and raised in Phoenix City were embarrassed, downtrodden over what had happened to the city they loved. Businessman Hugh Bentley owned several sporting goods stores in Russell County. In 1949, he attended a business conference in Chicago and was upset and embarrassed when he realized the reputation of Phoenix City as Sin City was all anyone wanted to talk about when they heard where he was from. Hugh Bentley decided it was time to start cleaning things up. He founded several organizations and associations to bring together Phoenix City residents to oppose organized crime. He didn't get the best response from his Good Government League, Citizens Committee, Ministerial Alliances. He asked a friend, Albert Patterson, for some perspective. Patterson had relocated his family to Phoenix City in 1933. He was a successful lawyer who launched his political career in the city he came to love. After a run in local politics, Patterson was elected to the Alabama State Senate in 1946. Albert Patterson advised Hugh Bentley that he needed to focus on creating an association that could explore ways to work against corruption and crime, not just speak out against it. Bentley launched the Russell Betterman Association in 1950. Members worked together to fight voter fraud by monitoring polls for suspicious activity, and they publicly campaigned for accountability for law enforcement in the region and worked to end gambling and prostitution as well. Early on, the RBA, as they were known, held secret meetings to protect their families and businesses from potential backlash. They knew their work to bring an end to organized crime would endanger themselves and the people they loved. But they also knew the city, as it was, 
endangered the community, which is why they pressed on. And Bentley was the first to pay a price for this work. Hugh Bentley's house was bombed on January 9th, 1952. Bentley, who had been out of town, was driving home, was close enough to home that he saw the explosion when it happened. His wife and children survived only because the force of the explosion propelled them out of the house before it was completely destroyed by the resulting fire. Some people organized to help track down suspects and work for justice for Bentley and his family. The Army offered up their ordnance experts from Fort Benning. Rewards were offered for information, but no suspect was ever identified. Five months later, another attack. Hugh Bentley was monitoring voter polls with his son Hubo and several members of the Betterment Association. The Phoenix City machine of organized crime had threatened the RBA with violence if they showed up at the polls, and they followed through with their threat. Hugh Bentley, his son, and another activist were beaten while they were working to protect the integrity of polling places. Bentley hoped that after all his family and RBA friends had been through, the state would realize the city needed assistance in cleaning up crime, might offer some help. But none came, which is why Hugh Bentley and the Betterment Association urged Albert Patterson to make a run for another political office, an office that would bring him power to fight corruption and focus on cleaning up Phoenix City. Albert Patterson was asked to run for Alabama State Attorney General. A change needed to happen in the Alabama AG's office, and it came down to a lack of trust. The Betterment Association had made a few strides in cutting down on crime in Phoenix City, had gotten a few trusted candidates into local elected office, but when they tried to make a big change, impeach Russell County Sheriff Ralph Matthews due to his department's mob connections, they failed because of sitting Alabama Attorney General Cy Garrett. Garrett spoke out in Matthews' defense, saying he knew just about every sheriff in Alabama and Ralph Matthews was among the best. When Bentley heard those words, he knew the only way to drive out crime was to drive it out from the office of the Attorney General. Albert Patterson's decision to run for Attorney General was not impulsive. He weighed the risks for himself and family against the real change he could create if he won. He could help the community and the state he loved. Here's Patterson explaining his decision to run during a campaign appearance on Birmingham's WBRC radio in 1954. Before entering the race for Attorney General, I was solicited to do so by many of my friends over the state. None of these requests came from any special interest or self-seeking groups. If elected, I will be absolutely free to serve all the people. I have been actively and openly identified with the people who have fought organized gambling and other criminal rackets that have long strangled my home community of Phoenix City. And Patterson campaigned on his character and strength, his discipline to run a tough race. Albert Patterson had left his family home in Alabama at the age of 16 to work in Texas oil fields. He joined the Texas National Guard and served in World War I and was awarded the Purple Heart 
after he was shot in the leg during the war. His injury left him permanently disabled and in need of a cane to walk. But he used his injury as a symbol of fighting on and surviving. He returned to his home state of Alabama to attend college. And Patterson would teach school in several counties throughout Alabama as he studied law. He opened a law practice in Alexander City, Alabama, but eventually moved that practice to Phoenix City. To be clear, Albert Patterson was at one time connected to the very mob he wanted to dismantle in Phoenix City. When Patterson made that run for state Senate in 1946, he was backed by the Phoenix City machine. He didn't ask for their backing and never made commitments of any kind to them, but they claimed him and he won office. Crime boss Hoyt Shepard had really taken a liking to Patterson after he defended him on murder charges in September 1946. Shepard knew he needed to throw all the money he could at lawyers when he was accused of killing Fayette Lieburn, a Georgia man who had tried to move in on Hoyt's business dealings in Phoenix City. Shepard would be acquitted, and Patterson would earn the largest retainer of his life for that win. Albert Patterson's connection with the mob in Phoenix City would begin to fracture two years later when he was hired to defend mobster Head Revell against extradition to Florida for the murder of an associate who had agreed to work with the FBI to bring charges against Revell for his illegal liquor operation. Patterson lost the case, was threatened by Revell's associates, and vowed to never again take a client that was associated with crime in Phoenix City. Albert Patterson wasn't involved in their crimes, but he felt guilt over defending these clients he knew were wreaking havoc in the region and not being vocal in his opposition sooner. That's why Patterson ran for attorney general as the, quote, man against crime. Patterson's opponent, Lee Porter, fed the rumor that Patterson was the Phoenix City Machines candidate that had been paid to run for office. And Patterson clarified he had no relation with organized crime and openly spoke about threats against him in that 1954 appearance on WBRC radio. They have dynamited some of our people's property and committed arsons against others. I have been personally threatened on a number of occasions. It is a sad commentary that little has been done to bring the perpetrators of these dastardly crimes to justice, to clean out once and for all this organized gambling and other criminal rackets. I am making a sacrifice to seek this office. The Attorney General of Alabama has the authority. He can, and it is his duty, and it is his obligation to stamp it out wherever it exists. Albert Patterson's opponent, Lee Porter, was the candidate who had accepted $25,000 in campaign contributions from gambling rings. And he had the backing of the sitting Alabama Attorney General, Cy Garrett, who had defended the Russell County Sheriff, Ralph Matthews, and other corrupt officials, including Matthews' chief deputy, Albert Fuller. Fuller was said to be even more connected to the mob than Sheriff Matthews. When you've defended the head of the Phoenix City Dixie Mafia, and then run for attorney general and promise to clean up Phoenix City and the state, push the mob out of the region, 
you make it clear you are now the enemy of the machine that was propping up Phoenix City. The machine did everything in its power to cause chaos and sow doubt among voters who considered voting for Albert Patterson. First, they embraced Patterson as their candidate, even as he was working to separate himself from the Phoenix City machine. By the time voters went to the polls on primary day in May 1954, voter intimidation and vote buying was widespread. But this was a statewide vote, and Patterson had the support he needed to move on to a runoff against Lee Porter, the man who had been taking money from the mob. Porter believed he had the election all wrapped up, and so did the machine backing him. After all, they had spent a lot of money buying votes. But when the votes were counted at the end of the June runoff, Albert Patterson had won by about 1,000 votes. A recount was called, and despite election interference and intimidation from the Phoenix City machine, Albert Patterson won the Democratic nomination for Alabama Attorney General. At the time of the election, there was no Republican opponent to take on Patterson, which meant once he won that runoff, he would win the general election in November. To Albert Patterson, this meant immediately going to work, setting about plans and strategy for how he would fulfill his promise to clean up Phoenix City. But someone had other plans for him. Albert Patterson wrapped up a late night of work on a Saturday night in his downtown Phoenix City office on June 18th, 1954. He had been hard at work, drafting plans, creating connections with people who wanted to work with him to end the crime and violence that was rampant in Russell County. Patterson made it clear that he was making plans that someone else might take up and finish for him, saying in a speech just one day earlier that he felt he had about a one chance in a hundred of making it to his swearing in. He knew the mob was out to get him, but he refused to carry a gun. Patterson said if the mob found him, he'd never have a chance to reach for a weapon. On June 18th, 1954, Patterson walked to his car that was parked in the alley near his office. Just as he was about to get into his vehicle, someone held a 38 caliber pistol to his head and shot three times. Albert Patterson managed to stumble about 30 feet from where he had been shot near his car before he collapsed and died. Patterson's killer was able to shoot him on a busy Saturday night in downtown Phoenix City, and somehow no one saw or heard a thing. At least that's what the sheriff's report would say. Fearing more violence and realizing corruption would not be stopped without help from the state, Governor Gordon Persons sent in the Alabama National Guard under the command of General Walter Hanna, who was told to do whatever necessary to get the job done. Now, General Hanna was a fierce leader who wasn't afraid of anyone or anything. In fact, when he arrived in Phoenix City, he told the governor the best way to move forward was to declare martial law and have his men on the streets. 
The governor refused that request. But General Hanna didn't accept the word no. He threatened he would arrest Governor Persons if he didn't support his efforts in Phoenix City. Governor Persons agreed and imposed what was classified as limited martial law. Over 100 guardsmen patrolled Phoenix City streets to maintain law and order. To do that, the guards started at the root of corruption in Phoenix City. General Hanna ordered the guard to disarm the Phoenix City Police Department. This was the first time this happened in America. The guard worked quickly to begin the process of cleaning up the city. They raided brothels and illegal gambling operations and made dozens of arrests. The general said if he had to tear down every illegal joint in town, he would do it to clean up Phoenix City. Within hours of Albert Patterson's murder, folks looked to the Phoenix City machine as prime suspects. They seemed to have the most to lose once Patterson took the oath of office as attorney general. One man stepped up to offer his department to help investigate the murder after the local police had been disarmed. Russell County Sheriff Ralph Matthews. He boasted that he and his chief deputy, Albert Fuller, would round up all the local criminals and bring swift justice for Patterson. But General Hanna knew entrusting Matthews and Fuller would be foolish, considering how corrupt their department was. He ordered Matthews and Fuller removed from the investigation, which was headed in a new direction. The Alabama Department of Public Safety sent in special agents to investigate Albert Patterson's murder. These investigators didn't believe the initial theory that crime bosses had ordered Patterson's murder. There was already so much heat on the mafia from their local Dixie Mafia connections to the syndicate that had relationships with New York crime bosses. It seemed a little too obvious and easy to believe that after Patterson had promised to bring down these criminals, that they would be willing to murder him and bring down even more heat on their organizations. Which is why investigators believed the killer had done everything in their power to make it look like the mob killed Patterson. Authorities keyed in on three politicians, theorizing these men orchestrated the assassination of Albert Patterson. Alabama Attorney General Cy Garrett Arch Farrell, the state prosecuting attorney in Phoenix City, and the chairman of the Jefferson County Democratic Executive Committee, Lamar Reed. All three had been indicted for shifting votes to help Patterson's opponent win the race for AG. Investigators looked into their whereabouts on the evening Patterson had been murdered. They started with Arch Farrell, whose office was in Phoenix City, near the murder scene. Farrell and Patterson were not friends. In fact, Farrell had publicly stated many times that he hated Albert Patterson. Apart from the general hate of Patterson, Farrell, Garrett, and Reed were all in hot water for having been caught interfering with elections in Birmingham. They were witness altering vote counts. They knew they were facing indictments and prison time if witnesses, including Albert Patterson, testified against them. And Patterson was set to testify two days after his murder, which is why investigators keyed in 
on these men as their prime suspects. When questioned, Farrell said he was on the phone with Attorney General Cy Garrett, who was in Birmingham at the time, and he didn't see or hear anything on the night of Patterson's murder. When investigators sought out Cy Garrett for questioning, they were surprised to learn he had left Alabama to spend some time in Texas. It was later revealed that Garrett suffered a mental breakdown and was hospitalized in Texas. As investigators worked the case for new leads, they found that, understandably, a lot of folks were scared and not willing to talk to them. No one wanted to put themselves at risk by talking. But authorities did eventually locate two witnesses who helped them get a break in the case. They spoke with a taxi driver who said on the night of the murder, it didn't seem odd to see Arch Farrell talking to Russell County Chief Deputy Sheriff Albert Fuller near the alley where Albert Patterson's car was parked that night. But once he heard about Patterson's murder, he couldn't help but wonder if there was something suspicious about it. Investigators also tracked down a witness who saw Arch Farrell and Albert Fuller running from the scene of the crime the night Patterson was murdered. Fuller and Farrell denied it all, saying they didn't know anything about the murder. Farrell had been in his office on the phone with Cy Garrett, and Fuller had been on duty when he was told about Patterson's murder. But a search of Fuller's home would reveal damning evidence. 38 caliber bullets made by the same manufacturer as the bullets that had killed Albert Patterson. As investigators worked to gather evidence for indictments, the Alabama Supreme Court was working to clean up the court system in Russell County where voter intimidation and fraud along with compromised juries had been running rampant. The court decided they had to make a fresh start in the county, even if it meant removing the local judge who seemed to be above corruption. The judge was replaced along with the jury commissioner to ensure confidence in the system. The court went so far as to purge the jury role and order a fresh pool of jurors be added to the role. A clean slate all around for the court system in Russell County. By December 1954, Cy Garrett, Arch Farrell, and Albert Fuller were charged with the first-degree murder of Albert Patterson. Fuller stood trial first, and the jury returned a guilty verdict. The prosecution wanted the death penalty, but Fuller was sentenced to life in prison. He maintained his innocence, and after only 10 years behind bars, he was paroled. Arch Farrell was tried and acquitted. And Cy Garrett, well, after his mental breakdown, he was ruled incompetent to stand trial and never stood trial for Patterson's murder. Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Ed Livingston ordered a special grand jury to investigate all suspicious activities in Phoenix City. That grand jury would return over 700 indictments, 740 to be precise. The indictments included minor crimes and major crimes, including murder. By the time the cases went to trial or were pleaded out, about 400 people would be imprisoned for their involvement in illegal operations 
in Sin City. As to the Attorney General's office, during the investigation into Patterson's murder and the subsequent cleanup of Phoenix City, the governor appointed Bernard Sykes as acting Attorney General. John Patterson, Albert Patterson's son and fellow lawyer, was placed on the ballot and won the office of Attorney General in 1955. Three years later, he became governor of Alabama. In the 1940s, Phoenix City had been labeled the wickedest city in America. Within seven months of the murder of the man who vowed to clean up the city, it would be proclaimed free of vice and Lookout Magazine dubbed it an all-American city. Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Margaret Barnes wrote of the cleanup and swift change in Phoenix City. She maintained the city owed a debt of gratitude to three men who made that change possible. Hugh Bentley for his moral leadership, Albert Patterson for his political leadership, and General Walter Hanna for his fearless military leadership. They all played a part in the change but it was Albert Patterson who made the ultimate sacrifice to clean up the original Sin City. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. This episode is just one of many stories of the power and reach of the Dixie Mafia. There are so many layers. And when it comes to the Patterson name, and legacy in Alabama, it's important to know that Governor John Patterson was a staunch segregationist and a controversial figure in Alabama history. His time in office was turbulent. Governor Patterson clashed with federal officials over voter registration policies, and when President John F. Kennedy tried to negotiate with Patterson after violent attacks against freedom riders in the 1960s, Patterson was reluctant to intervene. If you want to dig deeper into the Patterson story, along with more about the Dixie Mafia, I'll have book recommendations along with the sources for this episode in the full show notes at southernmysteries.com. Now, if you're enjoying the show, make sure you rate and review where you're listening and share the show on your socials to help spread the word about Southern Mysteries. And remember, you can hear more each month with bonus content Our Patreon members get Southern Mysteries shorts at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Thanks for listening.